the rightful heir to the throne, Joan the Second. Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where in addition to passing judgment on all the kings and emperors of France, from Clovis to Napoleon III, we are also going to review the woman who should have been the first queen of France, but got completely passed over. Who will be selected as the ultimate badass bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And who will be sent to the mediocre stands. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Je <laughs> Ben Clark. And I'm Liza Summers. And we're getting into the life of Joan II, who did become Queen of Navarre, but did not become Queen Just of not France. France. As she should have. As she should have, because people of Navarre, which is a tiny little country in, in northern Spain, were a little bit less weird about having female monarchs. Yes. Uh, then it turns That's out the like French him. were. Um, and we'll get a bit into some of the reasons behind Really the any other over. country. Really any other country because we, yeah. Well, I mean, at, yes. at this stage, like, England has not had a, successfully had a female monarch. Yeah. The throne has passed through a woman, um, Matilda. Oh. But Matilda herself yeah. didn't succeed in becoming I queen. I know. It is very unusual at this time that... France would say completely we won't even pass yeah. it through the female line, let alone have female monarchs. We think of women's history as like a straight line of like women slowly getting more and more rights, but that could not be further <laughs> from the truth. It's very much up yeah. and down. Um, well, come on, in America how, recently, how they've gone backwards. Exactly. Or you think Perfect about, you know, example. like witch trials and, and stuff like that. Yeah. People think of that as, like, an early, like, medieval thing. But that didn't start until, like, the, the 1600s. Sure. And then it was, like, a big thing yeah. for 200 years. And then it went away. So it was, like, you know. And if someone called me a witch nowadays, I'd gladly take that title. Yeah. But anyway. Um, <laughs> um, with that tangent over. So let's get into Joan's life. Let's, let's dive straight yes. in. So Joan was an Aquarius like me. Uh, she was born on the 28th of January, 1312, to Margaret of Burgundy, uh, ostensibly her daughter by Louis X, and Louis was about to inherit France from his father, Philip IV, and had already inherited Navarre from his mother, Joan I. Uh, so Joan's parents were second cousins, uh, as they were both great-grandchildren of St. Louis. <laughs> And now I'm going to summarize the last four episodes, but from Joan's perspective. So (laughs) when she was two years old, Joan's paternity uh, came into question. Uh, Her mother, Margaret, was accused of being the ringleader in the Tour de Nil affair, an adulterous liaison that she and her sister-in-law, Blanche, carried on with two handsome Norman knights. Uh, Philip and Walter of Ornay. I wish I could have seen what they looked like. Yeah, they were probably very handsome. Um, Joan's mother, therefore, had her head shaved and was thrown into prison at the impenetrable Chateau Gaillard, uh, where she either wasted away or was strangled to death on her husband's orders. Yeah. I'm sorry, going with the theory that she was killed. Yeah, that's always more fun. 
Um, in the meantime, Joan's father, Louis X, had become king of France with the death of her grandfather, Philip IV. And as we know, mm-hmm. uh, Louis made a, mid- a bit of a mess and died mm-hmm. a very early death in his mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Joan is now an orphan at the age of four. Oh, there's no memories of dear old dad. No, if he was her dad. <laughs> but even mm-hmm. if he wasn't, uh, the Orne brothers are definitely executed at this point. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. she, she, she definitely has no parents either way. Uh, but Joan's new stepmother, Clemence of Hungary, was pregnant mm-hmm. with Louis's second child, who turned out to be a boy who took precedence over Joan in the line of succession. Uh, the boy was named John, and he was mm-hmm. king for his entire lifetime of five days. Of five days. Yeah. Sadly. So now Joan gets to be Queen of France and Navarre, right? Uh-uh. Unfortunately not. While her grandmother, Joan I, had been accepted as Queen of Navarre, even though she herself was a baby, uh, the circumstances had been very different. She was actually born in Navarre. Well, Joan is born in France. <laughs> yeah, no, but Joan I was born in Navarre. Well, I'll get into the reasons why Joan was accepted as a queen, but but okay. Joan II was not initially. So, because she doesn't inherit Navarre at this point either. She didn't inherit nothing. Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. France was a much larger kingdom, and unlike Navarre, the Capetian dynasty had reigned for centuries, uh, only ever mm. passing the throne through the direct male line. So there was no actual rule at the, at the time saying women could not inherit the French throne, but that wouldn't stop Joan's male relatives from trying. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing that Joan I hadn't had, which was uh, like powerful male uncles that could usurp her. Mm. Um, yeah. so at the time of baby, jo- baby John's death, as we know, Joan's uncle, Philip the Tall, was already regent of France, and so he easily slid mm. into the role of king, becoming King Philip V. Yeah, a hop, skip and a jump over Joanie. Exactly. Meanwhile, a faction coalesced around little Joan. She wasn't completely bereft of support. Uh, these were mainly people who opposed uh, her usurping uncle, as well as his advisor, Charles mm-hmm. of Valois, um, who was his uncle, mm-hmm. so great-uncle Valois. The main supporter of Joan was her uncle on her mother's side, which is Duke Ober- Odo IV of Burgundy. Um, mm-hmm. Or, more accurately, his mother, Agnes of mm-hmm. France, Joan's grandmother Agnes. Uh, she was mm-hmm. the last surviving child of St. Louis. Damn. Um, and we haven't really mentioned her in the history at all. Yeah. Except maybe in St. Louis' episode. But but Agnes, she married the Duke of Burgundy, and her her daughter was Margaret of Burgundy, who was who was Joan's mother, and then we get Joan. So Agnes mm. had sent loads of letters to the French lords looking out for a little girl, Joan. Nice. She'd been furious at how her daughter had been treated, and now she was furious at how her granddaughter was being treated. Rightfully so. So she was calling Philip V's coronation completely, uh, like, you know, uncalled for, illegal, and that everything Blast should pass me. to Joan. Yeah. But Philip was backed by Charles of Valois, the most powerful lord in mm. France, uh, who uh, most of the Respected other him. lords were behind. So the Burgundian faction was ignored, um, and as a result, mm. they threatened open rebellion. Ooh. So Philip V managed to stop the Burgundians from rebelling, brought them over to his side in March 1318, 
with a generous compensation for having stolen his niece's throne. So mm. Duke Odo the Fourth. What can was, compensate that? Well, Duke Odo the Fourth was given one of Philip's daughters, his eldest daughter, um, to marry. Um, and she was the heir to other Burgundy and Artois, if you'll remember. Uh, this was yep, 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 yep. This is Joan the Third of Other Burgundy. So many Jones. Mm. So that was an offer that Odo couldn't refuse. So he basically dropped his niece's claim in return for getting these lands into his family. Chops like a hot potato. Yeah. Meanwhile, Philip also uh, wrote into his will that should he die without male heirs, which he does, the thrones of France and Navarre will still pass to his brother Charles IV. But Joan would become the Countess of Champagne and Brie. Um, these two very wealthy regions east of Paris, which had historically been attached to, like, Joan I's lands in, in because um, she was in the House of Blois, which had, you know, controlled those lands. Yeah. So Joan's getting, like, a bit of the inheritance she should have been entitled to. Um, <laughs> she was also given a huge marriage dowry of 15,000 livres. wonder what that is in modern day. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I think know. money converters... From One of our that... listeners can Google that and figure that out for us. There are, like, money converters, but I think they only really work as far back as, like, 1600s. Yeah. If you go back, like, pre-Renaissance, it's it's not as reliable. Yeah. Um. So this dowry and these lands, however, were not necessarily for Joan. What? But for her husband. Um, so in June 1318, a few months after this agreement was made, Joan was married to her first cousin once removed, Philip of Evra. How old was she? Well, at the time of their marriage, uh, Evra was 12 and Joan was 6. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's more of like a very formal betrothal. So they are definitely yeah. wedded. But they, the marriage will not be consummated not until, bedded. obviously, yeah, until obviously they are both of, yeah. of age. age. Well, Joan will probably need to be like 15, 16 before they do it. Um, actually, I think she's 14 when they, when they, when they do it. Yeah. So in the early years of their marriage, Joan didn't live with Evra for obvious reasons. By the way, the House of mm. Evra is another one of these branches of the Capetian family that's kind of split off. Mm. Kind of like the Valois. Mm. They're, like, yeah. just slightly junior to the Valois. Okay. So they're kind of, okay. like, the the third houses side, of France. Side branch. Yeah. Um, the smaller twig. Yeah. But, yeah, Joan and Ever did not live together. Uh, they wouldn't be allowed to consummate their marriage for, for some time, thankfully. In the meantime, Joan yeah. was sent to live with her husband's grandmother, Mary of Brabant, the second wife oh. of King Philip III, who was still kicking mm. around. Got a lot of these older women still kicking around that we haven't really mentioned much. Nice. But Mary of Brabant, if you if you remember, she married Philip III after he got back from Crusade. He'd lost his wife. She'd fallen off a horse. Yeah. They were already male heirs, so she just had she had her son, um, the Count of Evra, who didn't who wasn't yeah. going to become king, and she ended up getting kind of shuffled off. And she was also at one mm. point accused of murdering the king's eldest son. Um, which oh yeah yeah I remember that was not was not a thing <laughs> it was not a thing that happened yeah um but that's Mary Poupon but uh, yeah so she sadly isn't going to last very long 
Uh, three years mm. later, in 1322, uh, Joan experienced another upheaval as Mary of Brabant died in January of that year. Mm. Not only that, but King Philip V also died of his wasting sickness. Uh, so the French and Navarrese thrones are now in the hands of Philip IV, um, the last in the direct male line of the Capetian dynasty. You mean Charles? Charles IV. Why did I read Charles and say Philip? It's because I'm so used to saying Philip. Mm. Probably. I'll say that again. <laughs> so the thrones of France and Navarre now pass to Charles IV, the last in the direct male line of the Capetian dynasty. So during Charles IV's reign, Joan moved in with her husband, Philip of Evre, who had recently succeeded his father as the Count of Evre. Evre being one of the largest cities in Normandy, by the way. So he's got all these Norman nice. lands. Nice. They also, of course, consummated their marriage, and Joan gave birth to her first daughter. Guess what her name was? Joan. Joan. Around 1326. So Joan was 14 years old when, when she had her first child. Oh, God. It's really gross and I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like that. She's a child herself. Yeah, especially since uh, Philip is 20 at this point. Mm. So it's really not nice. So like his brother, Charles IV only reigned for about six years and sired no male heirs. Mm -hmm. So when he died in 1328, his young wife, Joan of Evra, who was incidentally our Joan's sister-in-law, uh, <laughs> this is a very tangled family tree, but uh, yeah. Joan of Evra was pregnant, as we learned last episode. But it turned out to be a girl. <gasps> um, and so the French throne was vacant for uh, for th th two months. Yeah. For, no, three months. From the, first of Jan from the 1st of February to the 1st of April mm -hmm. of that year. Two months. February. Yes, two months. You're right. It's March. two months. Yeah. Yeah. So the French throne once again passed over all of the female candidates uh, to the eldest oh, male what, five cousin. Five of them? There are six of them at, at this... No, oh, six. seven. There are seven of them at this point. <sighs> Damn. Because um, there's Joan, and then there's the four daughters of Philip the fifth, and then there's the two daughters of Charles the fourth. Ah. That's a lot of daughters. A lot of would-be queens. It passes up the direct male line, disregarding all the women uh, in the French royal family. And goes to Philip of Valois, who becomes known as Philip the Fortunate, for obvious reasons. <laughs> and uh, is now Philip VI of France. And we will get to him in our next Kingly episode, when we start doing the House of Valois. Yeah. But the throne of Navarre was a different story. So it had come into France via Joan I. Joan I being married to Philip IV who's Philip of Valois' uncle. So Philip of Valois is not a descendant of Joan I. Yeah. He does not have a no claim Navarre on Navarre blood. at all. Even if you are also misogynistic, <laughs> you still have to... Have some sort of relation. You still run into the fact that Joan I literally has no male descendants, unless you count the King of England, uh, Edward III. And they're not going to allow that. And not, that's not going to be allowed. So... That's not an option. Now only Joan's granddaughters had a claim on it. So now Joan becomes Joan II of Navarre as the most senior granddaughter, uh, being the Win. daughter of the first son. And France and Navarre are now separate once again, but only kind of. They kind of uh, maintain mm. a bit of a link here because 
Yeah. Joan and both Joan and her husband are still vassals of the King of France for their lands in France, which is mm-hmm. something that we've encountered a lot between the kings of France yeah. and England, um, which is that they still have to swear homage for those lands. But now Joan is finally a queen, at least. Woohoo! Albeit not the queen of what she probably wanted to be queen of. And she is 16 years old. Damn, 16. Damn, queen. So Philip of Valois, now Philip VI, respected the fact that he had no claim on Navarre, but he was determined to keep Joan's counties of Champagne and Brie within the French royal domain. He did not want those to be in the hands of a foreign ruler. They were a crucial Mm. buffer between Paris and the Holy Roman Empire to the east. So Philip VI wanted to consolidate it within the royal domain for good. He wanted to get that land. So he offered Mm. Joan and her husband a deal. He would recognize them as king and queen of Navarre, completely unchallenged, without any fuss, if they traded Champagne and Brie for the less valuable but still lucrative counties of Mortain and Longueville in Normandy, as well as Angoulême down in Aquitaine in the south of France. Okay. They took the deal. They took the deal. So combining this with Philip of Evra's existing lands and titles, You've still got a pretty sizable chunk of France. Little chunk, yeah. Belonging to the king and queen of Navarre. <laughs> so Joan, or more likely her husband, agreed to this deal with Philip of Valois. And so in April 1328, the crowns of France and Navarre had an amicable se- separation, the bit of exchange of land. <laughs> Though as I'll get to at the end of the episode, we will eventually see these crowns reunite in the distant future. Mm. But but between now and then, we will also see them not necessarily get along all the time. <laughs> hee hee. That makes sense. If I was Joan, I'd be so salty to the French. She, we will, we may see it later in the episode, but yeah, she, she does not appear salty at first, but we'll see, maybe she's bottled it up a bit um, based on her actions much later. She gets older. So Joan and her husband thus become Queen Joan II and King Philip III of Navarre, um, I'll keep calling Philip Evra, though, just to not get him confused yeah, with just, the other Philips. There's too many. Yeah, I'll just call him Evra, because uh, he's the Count of Evra. Sorry if it's that offends easier. him, because he's like, I'm actually a king. Um, <laughs> but he's not Screw really a king. Screw you, buddy. He's You're only king, king for your wife. Yeah, he's a king jure uxoris, which is the legal term for being a king through your wife. And Eliza, you'll be very pleased to learn that mm-hmm. Philip and Joan, sorry, Joan and Evra... <laughs> Mm-hmm. decide to actually go to their new kingdom. <gasps> Yay! Not just to visit it, but to be crowned there and live there for an extended oh period of time. Oh my god. I know. And, you know, start like a, a new dynasty there, that sort of thing. They will obviously be back and forth um, because they do yeah. still have lands in France, but at least they're making a bit of an effort. More than Joan the First did. I'm guessing it probably came as a bit of a relief for Joan to finally leave the French court, where there were still whispers yeah. swirling that she was illegitimate, that she was a bastard. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, a council in Navarre had unequivocally declared that they had chosen her as their rightful queen. They had tried mm. to declare her declare her queen before, and they put up a real fuss. Oh. They hated Charles the Fourth, the last king of France. <laughs> um, who, uh... I feel like anyone's better than you, even a woman! Yeah, so I'll actually, I'll get into this now. So, um, I'll recap a bit of what's been happening in Novar since we now have to, like, actually focus it on, on it a little bit. So, yeah, 
it is now time for us to leave France and cross the Pyrenees uh, to finally Mm. see how Navarre is doing. So Navarre had been under French subjugation for 53 years at this point, um, dating back to when Joan I was whisked away from Navarre into the guardianship of the King of France. Mm. Joan never returned to Navarre after her infancy, and it was never visited by two of the three sons who succeeded her. So, correction mm. from a previous episode, Louis X did actually visit Navarre for his coronation. Wow. But this visit in 1307 was extremely brief and hardly counts because he never actually lived there. Um, he, like, just was in and out for his coronation. Mm. And he kind of did it a bit begrudgingly because um, his dad told him to. He's like, but I don't want to... Instead, the Capetian like, kings. <laughs> Instead, the Capetian kings had appointed northern French governors over Navarre, uh, treating it more mm. like a peripheral province than a core part of their domain. The lords and people of Navarre had never been happy with this arrangement. Obviously, yeah. not only did they feel okay. neglected, but their unique culture and their rules of government frequently clashed with those of France. The most glaring example of this came in 1322, when Charles IV succeeded as Charles I of Navarre and neglected to sign the Fuero, a document confirming the rights and privileges of the Lords of Navarre. Sort of like a Spanish Magna Carta, but less extreme. Mm. If you listen to Spanish Arpoda, you'll know know all about the the Fuero. um, Because at the end of their episode, instead of sending people to the guillotine, they say... um, do we think they get to sign the fuero or do we tell them fuera, which means go away in, in Spanish, <laughs> which is a very clever, clever play on words there. That is. But uh, many of these lords, very mm-hmm. angry that uh, these kings were not expe- uh, respecting the fuero, wanted them to, f- wanted them to so. fuera. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. They'd seen both Philip V and Charles IV as Joan's usurpers, much more than the French mm-hmm. lords had, because once again, the idea of male-only succession was a bit alien to them. They know their loyalty. Yeah. So in the history of Navarre, they've already seen two examples of the throne passing through a woman. Mm-hmm. And one they example of a girl and a baby girl at that becoming queen regnant. And it's like kind of ironic as well that the Capetians would never even have ruled Navarre if the throne hadn't been able to pass through a woman since they got it through their mom. Very true. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's deeply ironic that they kept Navarre away from Joan for this long, even though... Yeah. Um, Without a woman, they wouldn't have it. Exactly. So when Charles IV died, the people of Navarre celebrated that Joan II was finally queen. Or more celebrated that he died. <laughs> yeah, because although her grandmother Joan I had been a distant queen, she had nonetheless respected and honoured, you know, her, her birthplace. Um, mm. And... So they were like, oh, we've got a Joan again. Like, they were happy about that. They thought she'd be yeah. the, the image of her grandmother. And we'll see if she is. Oh, um, so, the, so the Council of Lords and Burghers in Navarre, or the Cortes, as they called it, uh, the council, had mm-hmm. met in March 1328 to decide among themselves who should be their monarch, because this was their custom. Uh they, it wasn't like France, where it was just automatic. They were like, no, nah, we've got to decide this semi-democratically uh, between the lords. So they also, at the same time, expelled the French governor, 
uh, to make it very clear Yeehaw. that Navarre was going to de- finally decide its own fate. Um, yeah. So by May of that year, when Philippe of Valois was crowned King of France, Joan had already been summoned to come to Navarre to be crowned as their independent queen. Nice. Now, very crucially, while all the negotiations back in France had been done via Joan's uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, or her husband, the Count of Evreux, the Navarrese were very determined to address her and only her in their summons. Aww. Um, I like that. They weren't doing this through a male relative, just like everyone else in France had been doing. Um, So they were finally, she was finally being treated as a ruler in her own right. Nice. And this is helped by the fact that she's now um, a married woman who's considered an adult in in her own, you know, (laughs) able to make her own decisions. Um, Yeah. So this didn't stop Evra from trying to assert himself, though. Uh, He wrote a letter to the Cortez, uh, signing himself as the King of Navarre, declaring that he had appointed two French lords, the barons of Melin and Sully, uh, as representatives in Navarre. Uh, The Navarrese were probably a a bit miffed to receive this letter. (laughs) They were like, oh, it's just like I don't remember addressing it to you. Who's this king? Also, business as usual, a French guy has decided to send down some governors rather than actually coming himself. So the Lords of Navarre demanded a response from Joan herself, um, as it was her that they declared queen, not this random guy. Uh, so they next received a letter from Joan. And Wait. although it was signed Joan II, Queen of Navarre, it declared mm. pretty much the same thing, uh, that Philip of Evreux was King of Navarre, and that Melin and Sully would represent him there as the governors. <laughs> I bet you they were like, well, obviously she didn't write this one. Yeah, they smelled a bit of a rat. So the Navarrese then protested that the letter was written in French, um, which was not their language. Uh, <laughs> ah, I love that. So Joan, like, we do not understand. Yeah, no comprende. She needs to come and tell us herself. Exactly. So Joan wrote a third letter to them, this time in Latin, uh, but basically said the same thing once again. Um... And there was a fourth letter as well, signed by both spouses to show that they were in agreement (laughs) about the situation. I'm not. So this is actually pretty hilarious. It, 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 like, reminds me of when you, like, message someone, but then realize that, like, it sounded bad. So you, like, message them again and then again. And then each time you're just, like, digging yourself further into the hole. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it's like. And everybody's like, ah. The Lords of Navarre did at least get Joan and Evera to come down. Yay. But they were rather apprehensive as the no. two of them came together. Um, so they met the new king and queen in November 1328 at the town of Roncevaux in the very same pass where Charlemagne uh, was defeated in Ooh. his ill-fated Spanish campaign uh, crossing the Pyrenees. Mm-hmm. And there the Knights of Navarre declared their intention to raise Joan up on their shields, as was <gasps> the ancient custom. Oh, yay! Yeah. So We're the Franks have the Franks have fully stopped this tradition, but it down in Navarre they're still doing it. They still preserve. Oh, I love them for the, that. the shield raising tradition from their ancient Germanic uh, ancestors. So good on them. So now I'm just imagining Joan like hugging and like high fiving all of her like knights and lords as they're like, yeah, let's raise you on the shields, yeah. Uh, while her husband and his French buddies were off like brooding. In the corner. <laughs> Just no one's paying attention. I'm imagining attention. her, like, 
being, yeah, but also same time being like, Shiz, am I going to fall off this shield? Well, they haven't raised her on the shields yet. They're just telling her that they will raise her on the shields. But like now, uh, Sully, one of the one of the French guys, pipes up uh, <sighs> during the negotiations. Well, it's like a lady can't. No, it's not that the lady a lady can't. It's that the man the man also should. <laughs> and they're like, "Bugger off, mate!" Um, he tells the Navarres that quote. The Apostle Paul said that the man is the head of the woman. Furthermore, the queen herself consents to her husband having a share in her rule. And then I just imagine, like, us panning over to Queen Joan, who's just on the dance floor not giving a shit about what these men are talking about. Uh, But unfortunately, Sully's appeal to biblical sexism worked. (laughs) Oh! And it was agreed that Joan and Philip should have a joint coronation in Pomplona, where they would be raised up on the shields together. I hope he fell off the shields. (laughs) Uh, and this was this took place on the 5th of March, 1329. Um, but in return for this honour, Philip of Evra, uh, who we should now call King Philip III, but I'm still just going to call him Evra, uh, made an agreement uh, with the Cortes of Navarre to certain limitations on his rights as king. Yay. Yeah. Also, interestingly, mm-hmm. Evra and Joan uh, agreed to a limited term to their rule. Oh. So basically they agreed that once they had a child who had reached adulthood, like once they had a child who'd reached the age of 21, they would abdicate in favor of that child. Um, oh. Which is a really interesting arrangement. And they would be fined 100,000 yeah. livres by the Cortes if they refused Ooh. to abdicate when that time yeah. come, came. Yeah, it's really interesting. But it is a bit yeah, of a moot point because they both die before their heir reaches 21. So... Aww. We'll get to Why that. Tell me things. <laughs> yeah. But it's an interesting it's interesting that they had that arrangement of like, you guys yeah. are king and queen, but only till this point. Yeah. Um yeah. So we don't have uh any stories showing that Joan and Philip's marriage was particularly affectionate, but we can assume that they got on fairly well based on the amount of children yeah. that they had. So as joint rulers, they were quite effective. Uh, which we'll get That's into good. in Voulez-vous, and as we'll see in V on Throne, lots of babies, um, and uh, fairly close and loving relationships with their children as well. Oh, that's nice. Moving to relations outside of the family to foreign rulers. Uh, mm. So soon after she took the throne, Joan uh, started uh, consolidating some alliances with the rest of Spain, secure those borders. Um, nice. So, she betrothed her eldest daughter to a prince of Aragon, which came in handy when they went to war with Castile six years later. Um, and, of course, Castile has been bitter, a bitter Betty about Navarre falling into French hands for quite a while. <laughs> so any excuse to go to, to war with him was good enough. And uh, this war uh, escalated from a minor dispute in 1335 over a monastery uh, in Fitero, in far uh, southern Navarre. But a peace treaty was signed the following year, so it didn't escalate too hard. Yeah, it's a little skirmish. A little skirmish, yeah. So in the meantime, uh, Joan and Evra had, surprise, surprise, been mostly absent from Navarre, um, leaving Sully, Melin, and the Cortes to take charge. 
Uh, they had returned to their French okay. lands in 1331 after two years in Navarre, so at least they spent a bit of time there. Did they have um, a bob in Navarre? Yeah, I think a couple of their children at least were oh. born in Navarre, yeah. Nice. And then they came back again five years later, just after the war with Castile had ended. So, like, you know, oh. when, it was, when it was safe to come safe. back. Um, but this time they only spent one year in Navarre and went back to their French lands again. So we can see an obvious, you know, oh. preference. Um well, still better than Joan the First. Yeah, but also things are things are heating up a bit in France uh, more so than there are in Navarre because we are approaching the start oh. of the Hundred Years' War here. Oh. Yeah, the Hundred Years' War will begin in our next episode in the year thirteen thirty-seven, um, a couple oh. of years after the war with Castile, and I won't spoil it too much. But suffice it to say, Edward the Third leads a massive invasion of France in the 1340s. Say what? So it's very bad times. It's very bad times for France. France. Um, that is so shocking. I had no idea whatsoever. Yes. And it's bad times for Joan as well because she has to face this invasion without her husband. Ever dies oh, in 1343. Yes. How old was he? He was, I think, about 40. Not very old. What did he die of? I actually didn't look this up. How dare you not look it up? You should expect me to ask how someone died. Actually, this is quite interesting. So Evra, near the end of his life, he he actually visited Navarre a few more times than jo- than Joan did. Oh. Um, mainly for military reasons. And Evra was preparing to go south and uh, uh, help the uh, a crusade against the the Muslim state of Granada in the far mm-hmm. south of Spain. Oh. So once again, we've got crusade foolishness leading to death. Yeah. Granada's so beautiful. Yeah, basically the story goes that, that Philip uh, was wounded by an arrow and then fell ill from the infected wound. Oh. And uh, he died. And then he was taken... Back to Paris to be buried. So, uh, more killed him? Yeah, presumably. Arrow? Arc. Unless it was friendly okay. fire. <laughs> hee hee. Because he was fighting alongside the Castilians who, you know, may have had some hard feelings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They might have accidentally uh, released that arrow in the wrong yeah, direction. Exactly. Would not be surprised. So, unfortunately, uh, Philip has died at war. Oh. Uh, Philip of Evra. It was a great honour for a man. Yes. And uh, it's bad times for Joan. So Yeah, she would have been 30s. Early yeah. 30s. So as King of Navarre, uh, Evra had earned the epithets Philip the Noble and Philip the Wise. Uh, oh, he'd actually been a pretty decent him. king. He'd struck a balance between his own French interests and those of the Navarrese Cortez, which is nice. more than I could say for any of the other Capetians. Uh, and at the end, yeah. he actually visited Navarre Twice as much as Joan did, as I said. So Joan never visited the kingdom again after her husband's death. Uh, Probably reminded her of him. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Furthermore, Joan started slowly and subtly reversing Philip's policy of supporting the new Valois dynasty in France. So she's staying in France, but she's also becoming more anti-French. Oh! And this has a lot to do with the Hundred Years' War. So it's very possible that Joan was still bitter that the Valois had usurped her rightful throne. And it's clear that mm-hmm. she'd far have preferred to be Queen of France than 
being given the consolation prize in Navarre, um, a country that she probably struggled to relate to as she didn't speak the language, nor did she yeah. ever feel at home there. But the reasons behind her about face may also be quite practical. So mm. in 1346, Edward III launched his Cressy campaign, his massive invasion, uh, mm. which we'll get to in much further detail next episode. <laughs> uh, because I still have to do a lot of the research for it. By this time, Joan had declared herself neutral in the Hundred Years' War. Oh, so Navarre's like, I'm not getting involved. Not getting involved. And actually signed a treaty with the English, allowing them to pass freely and peacefully through her French lands. Oh. Which was a huge strategic blow to the King of France. Oh, he must have been furious. Yeah. She also promised not to build new fortifications there, just to make it as easy as possible for the English to march through. God, she really was peeved. Yeah. So queen. we'll see how far Edward III gets in his invasion next episode. Um, mm. But thanks I to wonder. her clever negotiation, Joan ensured that her own lands were safe. That is, until the following year, when a new threat mm. swept in, this time from the east, invisible to the naked eye, but far more deadly than any army. The Mongolians? Are the Mongolians invisible to the naked eye? Oh, the plague. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they're very fast on their horses, but no. uh, this is connected to the, Mongol- the, the Mongols, uh, but this is a type of bacteria that we now know as Yersinia pestis, uh, the cause of the most deadly epidemic in European history, the Black Death. The plague! Day Uh... Now, I literally talk about the Black Death every day because I do it. I talk about it on my tours. <laughs> the plague! I talk about the Black Death in Edinburgh of 1645 on my tours um, in my fake Scottish accent. <laughs> and, but we're talking about the OG Black Death of the 14th mm-hmm. century, the, the worst known epidemic in human history. The rat one? They're all rat ones, um, but they... There was a big one in for the fourteenth century, and then it, and then there were like little ripples of it all the way up to the, the early nineteen hundreds. And there are still nine cases of, of bubonic plague today in America, so it still exists today. But thankfully, we have. An- I bet you it's from some anti-vaxxers. Well, I don't think there is a vaccine for it, but it's it's easily healed with antibiotics. So yeah. So the Black Death, uh, it was caused by the bacteria Yersinia pestis, which was carried to Europe by rats, or more accurately, the fleas on the rats. The poor furry fellows were blameless, and they were just the first victims of the plague, of course. So when the rats died a horrible death, the fleas jumped onto new hosts, and humans just happened to be susceptible to this new, new type of bacteria. Yep. Uh, most probably originating in Central Asia, which is where the Mongols come in. <laughs> so once the bacteria entered the bloodstream of humans, it could be transferred through air uh, or through contact, just like the flu. And uh, there are three different strains of the virus, which are the ones I took about in my tour. So there's the... <laughs> so I'm just doing this off the top of my head at this point. So there's yeah. the... Uh, to a spiel. There's a pneumonic plague, which uh, starts like a common... Flu, um, and then you end up like violently coughing 
and sneezing and vomiting as well. It's completely internal, so people can't really see what's going on mm. until your organs hemorrhage and your blood vessels burst and you end up with these nasty black marks, bruise-like marks all over your skin. And that's why it gets the name Black Death. That's like makes me think of what my brother's wart when it got burnt off looked like. It went this like weird, like when a wart gets burnt off, his went like this weird black. It looked like it's probably like that. The pneumonic strain of the plague only had a 5% chance of survival. Um, mm. And you'd be dead within the first 48 hours of showing symptoms. God. Yeah, so it's pretty it bad. not around. Yeah. They've also got the bubonic plague, which is more famous. Yeah. Um, it manifests in pustules occurring around your neck, your armpits, or your groin. So the sweaty areas of the body. Mm-hmm. You actually had a better chance of survival because if you if you popped the pustules, if you drained them out, if you properly cleaned them and cauterized them with a hot iron poker, <laughs> which was a very painful. If you didn't process, die of the pain. If you didn't die of shock from that, you had a 50-50 chance of survival. But uh, if you didn't get that treatment, it was like almost certain death because the the boils would actually explode inside your body and that would poison Ew. your blood and, ki- and kill you um, with like sept- septic shock, basically. Um, so, so those are those two strains. There's also a strain called the septicemic plague, which kind of is a mix of both the bubonic and pneumonic. Ew. So if you're lucky enough, you'll get the best of both worlds. <laughs> I don't want that song. So <laughs> Hannah Montana was not was thankfully yeah. not talking about the Black Death when she the, the septicemic plague. Um, so those are the three strains of plague. A, a popular story about the origins of the plague in Europe come to us from an Italian author named Gabriele de Messici, who reported <laughs> on the thirteen forty seven siege of Caffa on the Crimean Peninsula north of the Black Sea mm. in what is now what now should be Ukraine, um, I should say. And Kaffa was besieged by the Mongols, um, an empire called the Golden Horde, which was one of the several fragments of the Mongol Empire that had split off mm. after the death of Genghis Khan. And the, the Golden Horde basically rules that sort of area of, like, Ukraine over to, like, Central Asia. Mm. Um, and, like, a bit of oh, Russia I hope I well. get to go to Mongolia next year or this year. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. That's my plans. This year or next year. Do a reverse invasion because they tried to invade Japan. <laughs> they did. I thought they just Yeah, they did. Them. You don't know the you don't know the story about how the Mongols tried to invade Japan? They were stopped by a hurricane, which the Japanese saw as like a divine hurricane that stopped the You're in a Mongols. typhoon. Yes, I'm in a typhoon. <laughs> Semantics. Um so where was I? Oh yeah, Kaffa. Kaffa was besieged by the Mongols, by the Golden Horde. And at That's Kaffa, a really cool name. The Golden Horde, yeah. Yeah. It's because of all the money they stole from the pillage from everyone. <laughs> and at Kaffa, uh, the Mongol leader, Johnny Beg, reportedly mm-hmm. flung plague-infested bodies over the walls into Kaffa as a form of cool. early biological warfare. Damn. Yeah. The siege was eventually lifted by an Italian expedition, which is where uh, Gabriele de Musisi comes in. Um, so Crimea was a very important center for trade uh, with mm. the West, and they didn't want the Mongols destroying it. But by the time the Italians arrived, the plague had already ripped through the city. And yeah. now that 
this big trading port of, uh, of Europe had opened up again, it was about dun, to dun, travel dun. by ship to all corners of Europe, starting with the Mediterranean and then spreading outwards up into northern Europe. Like a pest. Like a plague, almost, one might say. What? <laughs> when it entered Europe. When it entered Europe, Europe was like, I'm fucked. Let's have a plague party. We'll survive it. Yeah. Uh, so nobody had ever seen a plague quite as bad as this. Uh, it was even worse than the first outbreak of smallpox in Europe, which had what? contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire. So we're talking like civilization destroying levels of plague here. And France being an important avenue for trade from the Mediterranean. France was about to get absolutely brutalized by this plague. One of the worst hit parts of Europe due to its big population mm. and the many trade routes that ran through it. So, in a span of five years, from 1348 to 1353, up to a third of France's population died of the plague. Damn. Entire villages were left completely empty, and Mm. the resulting labour shortage will see massive social and political ramifications in France going forward. Mm. Now, because the royalty and nobility of Europe could move around and isolate themselves more easily than your average peasant, the plague certainly had a far lower death toll among the top ranks of society, unfortunately. Uh, (laughs) So, for example, um, the Decameron, a compilation of fairy tales written by Giovanni Boccaccio, um, has its framing device as, like, a group of Florentine nobles who have isolated in a villa outside the city during the plague, and they tell yeah. stories to pass the time. So that's the... As you do. So that's the overarching story of the Decameron. So it's just a bunch of, you know, young, rich people go off to a villa, they tell stories, and that's Even the Even their Decameron. grapes and their wine. Yeah. Ultimately, however, if a noble or royal did come in contact with the plague, they were just as vulnerable as anyone. They were effed, because there was no known cure at this point. And also there was no plague was going to be like, oh, wait, actually, you're royalty. You, I'll skip over exactly. you. Plague doesn't care if your blood is red or blue. And Joan unfortunately discovered this in October 1349 Aww. when the Black Death found its way into her household and led to her swift and sudden death at the age of 37. So Joan was succeeded as Queen of Navarre and Countess of Angoulême by her son, Charles II, who will become known as Charles the Bad. Oh. So we'll be seeing a lot more of him. (laughs) He's going to cause a lot of grief for the early Valois kings. Oh, not for the... Nope. (laughs) If Joan was against the Valois kings... Charles is definitely against the Valois kings. I bet you somehow he's like, they caused my mother's death. The plague is their fault. It's their punishment for usurping the throne. Less that, but more like, you know, my mum should have been queen and I should be king, basically. Um, And it's going to be very fun to see. So keep an eye on Charles the Bad. Even though if I was him, I would argue that the plague is a sign that they should return the throne to the rightful heir. Yeah. But um, you're gonna you're gonna be very annoyed with Charles the Bad <laughs> in a couple of episodes' time. Yeah, um, he's gonna be a gonna real. Gonna want to slap him. Yeah, but um, in many ways he is actually you know 
the rightful heir to the throne. Um, and you could see the same for all of his descendants who passed down the kingdom of Navarre another seven generations through both kings and queens regnant. Um, the last queen regnant in Navarre's history, Joan III, uh, will pass her throne to her son, Henry, Duke of Bourbon, in 1572. Oh. And this Henry will end up becoming a king of France. When the House of Bourbon comes to the French throne in nearly 300 years' time, not only will the crowns of France and Navarre be reunited, but France will finally pass to its rightful heir, one oh, of the heirs of Joan back. II, the Zept Queen. So it comes full circle eventually. That's nice. But we've got a lot of history to get through before then. Yeah, um, a lot of and time. In the meantime, Charles the Bad is very annoyed that he can't become the King of France. But, you know, Charles the Bad may get an episode. We'll see um, if he's worthy of one. But, see uh, what shenanigans we'll see. he ha- does. We'll see. So it's now time to see to, for us to rewind back to Joan II to pass judgment on her mm-hmm. and see where she gets okay. to sit to watch her kingly yes. ancestors in the final tournament. So... Okay. Go to Enchanté. Enchanté. So I've got, um, I'll show you firstly her tomb effigy. Mm-hmm. So we've got a tomb effigy of, of Joan II wearing a wimple. Uh, I love that word. Which is this sort of like tight veil thingy, kind of like what nuns wear today. Her nose is but so it, big. But back in the, back in that time, it was, it was a wimple's, uh, Anyone's just common fashion? for for any yeah for any woman. It was worn in the same way that like modern Muslim women wear hijabs. Like it's just mm. part of everyone's usual yeah. normal dress, and it's meant to make you look sort of modest and classy as well. <laughs> I'd rather be skanky. <laughs> I'd rather be a low down, no good, dirty, rotten skank. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's the tomb effigy. She is buried in Saint Denis, which you'll be happy to. To learn it. Actually, is she buried in Saint-Denis? I might double check that. Yeah, it'd be surprising. Yeah, she's buried in Saint-Denis. Oh, nice. I mean, most of the French royal family do get buried in Saint-Denis. Like, we saw Everett get buried there. And he's Mm. just a cousin. So, then I've also got a little little picture of her from a genealogy book. Which, we saw some of these back in the Carolingian times. We saw the little family tree with, like, the little miniature image of of people in them and you know if i'm using one of these i'm scraping the bottom of the barrel because they're not the best quality <laughs> she has blonde hair yeah she's blonde and uh she's got it it's either tied back Coil. i think it's tied back or it's quite short yeah. <laughs> but i think it's tied back coiled up but that's her as her as a little girl i'm assuming it's when she was little because a married woman would not be caught without her wimple um <laughs> mm-hmm. last um, me i say yes Although we have another image of Joan without a wimple because she's wearing a crown instead. And I'll show you this nice. image. This might have to be the episode image because it's, it's more magnificent. So this is a pic- an image of Joan from her Book of Hours. Ooh, I like it. And there's an angel. And then there's some, what, children in a what, jester or something? <laughs> I believe he's a beggar. But uh, So this is from the Book of Hours yeah. commissioned by Philip VI of France um, and dedicated oh. to Joan of Navarre, his cousin. Uh, and it was written and illustrated around the 1330s or 40s. Uh, so this is the only contemporary illustration that I could find of her. Well, it is a good one. Yes. I believe this image shows Joan being directed by an angel uh, to give alms to a beggar and his children. 
I'm just saying, I think that's one of the best contemporary pictures I've like or portrayals I've seen. It's really nice. She has this lovely, she has this lovely swooping dress. Yeah, and she's just looking very queenly. By the way, in the 14th and 15th centuries, you're going to see a lot of these dresses where they have such long skirts. They have to be like gathered up and like tied up again yeah. at the waist. They 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 wore freakishly long skirts because the basically the more mm-hmm. cloth and drapery you had, the richer the you were. The wealthier you were. Yeah. If you could have excess cloth, basically, you were more magnificent. So if you were tripping over your clothes. You were very yeah. wealthy. So we're gonna see this become a big a big fashion. God, I would trip over them so much. It was a real hazard. But luckily as a woman you wouldn't have to walk around much. <laughs> true, true. Just be carried around. <laughs> yes. But don't go on horses and don't don't ride in carriages as well. Remember from last episode. Mm. I just want to be like a Roman emperor and carried around. So other things uh, during her time as queen, Joan brought signs of a, a present monarchy back to Navarre. Um, in particular, <laughs> she spruced up the new royal residence of Elite. Nice. Uh, where her um, in her will she stipulated that her her son finance a new chapel to Santa Maria, which stands to this day and contains oh. amazing examples of 14th century sculpture. So that's the oh. Church of Santa Maria Santa Maria of Alite, um, oh. and she also improved like fortifications and stuff like that in, in Pamplona. So we like we have a lot of remaining architecture from her time. Oh, that's really nice. Or from her, you know, her children and grandchildren's time, which of course yeah. she is partly responsible for as well, because she mm-hmm. created them, she <laughs> them with her body. Um, so say what? That... <laughs> so that is that's what I got for Enchante. It's pretty decent. Okay, yeah, I'm really, I'm really liking that contemporary image. It's really adding the points for me. No 19th century paintings though. She kind of gets forgotten about. I don't need that. I don't need that no. because that contemporary is amazing. Yeah. I think it's my and, favorite contemporary of all so far. And men in the 19th century were sexist, so. Sexist peaks. Although, last last Enchante, we had a painting by a woman, which was nice. Oh, yeah. Charles IV's painting. So, that's on guard. What do we want to give? Uh, not on guard. Uh, that's Enchante. What do we want to give for June? Um, I'm liking her. She should be more well-known, I feel. Yeah. I want to give her, like, a five. Wow, that's quite generous. I know. I'm just really digging it. Not just because she's a woman. Yeah. But I just really like that contemporary depiction. I think it's very queenly. Because a lot of those depictions, the the ruler does not look very rulery. They look like some shriveled up dying husk. But this one actually looks nice and alive. And I, I do like her effigy. It looks very um very realistic looking, I think. It's really... Mm. Like, she looks like a real person. Yeah. She doesn't look like a weird man, baby. I'm going to be slightly less generous, which I feel bad about. But I just... I don't know. There's stuff missing. Like, in many ways, she's just really a standard queen of the time in terms of, like, how much depiction she gets. So... I don't know. I think I'm going to give her a three, but you can stick with the five. Okay, actually, no, four. four. I wanted to get slightly better than, than Charles. <laughs> no, you could stay at five. I'll stay at five then. Eliza, you're yeah. never more generous than I am. <laughs> I'm always the generous <laughs> one. I'm letting you be the generous one for once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I just like, and also like her, yeah, I just like her. 
She's left a good impression on me. Okay. Mainly because she actually visited Navarre, which is more than her namesake. Yeah. Even if it was just a, a couple times. Um. Better than more than her namesake. And she stayed for like years at a time, so that's... Yeah, cool. so that gives me some So happiness. that is a nine for Andrante. Not too bad. Not too shabby. Now we move on to On Guard. On Guard. How did she mm. fight for her right to Plague Party? Hmm. Too soon. It's too soon. The death, the Black Plague was just, it was so short time ago. Hmm. It's only a couple hundred or so years ago. <laughs> so Eleanor Woodacre has a great book, which is one of my main sources for this episode, which is about the, the queens, the reigning queens of Navarre. Uh, goes nice. through all the reigning queens of Navarre. It's really interesting. And uh, she talks about the relationship of Joan and Evra as one between two good team players, basically. Mm. So they may not have been personally very close, potentially due to the 10-year age gap between them. Um, and there are no authors, like, waxing poetic about their affection for one another. I thought it was six years age gap. You're right, it was six years. You and your math today. Although I th- I think we're unsure about I think we're unsure about Evra's birth actually so I'm actually not sure. But it's anyway, six to ten years. Uh, yes, but it was still an age gap nonetheless. Like when they got married, they were definitely very different ages. If you think about, yeah, like sure, the difference between 14. like twenty two and twenty eight is not that big, but the difference between yeah twelve and twenty you know, eighteen nineteen twenty that's that's a lot. Yeah. 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 Whitaker also, however, writes that, quote, their fairly rare periods of separation and their sizable family attest to their bond. Moreover, Joan's mm-hmm. explicit willingness to share power with her husband is some testimony to her regard for him. Um, so, you know, there's... An amicable relationship, at least. Yeah, at least they were friends. <laughs> yeah. If not uh, in love. Um Philip of Evra, despite initial uneasiness among the Navarrese, proved to them that he was both a capable and caring king who respected the rights like and privileges him. of his new subjects, as well as of his wife, the queen. Um, like a duck to water. And both he and Joan were willing to make compromises so that both the marriage and the co-ruling could work. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're team good players. Sign. They know how to communicate. Yeah, while she is giving up some of her power to Evra, in the interest of, like, being diplomatic. She's not totally giving everything Release, away. She's yeah, still considered the... Yeah, she's still considered queen, queen. the senior... Yeah, queen-queen, uh, as far as the Navarrese yeah. are concerned. Yeah. Nonetheless, Philip is the man, so he is the mm-hmm. dominant partner in at least the marriage. Um, but yeah. when Joan II finally stepped out of the shadow after his death, she proved that she hadn't really needed a man the whole time. <laughs> she continued to rule quite smoothly. Um, a lot of her ruling still happened through male governors, particularly in Navarre, which, which she wasn't mm. able to visit due to the tense situation in France. Uh, yeah. But she showed that she had different ideas to Philip uh, in who should mm. be governors. So upon his yeah. death, she immediately dismissed his long-serving governor in Navarre, Melin, in favour of her mm. own choice. So we can see yeah. her asserting herself after he dies and nice. being like, actually, he had some poo-poo-y ideas. Yeah. 
So Joan also shifted from her husband's pro-Valois stance, of course, to a stance that was mm-hmm. decidedly against the new dynasty. Anti against the usurpers. Joan was extremely litigious in various legal disputes over land with the King of France as well, um, oh, including nice. a complaint that she lodged in 1345, where uh, sh- uh, she said that the, the county of Angoulême was not giving her as much revenue as she had been told it would when she gave it up Ooh. in return for, cha- for uh, champagne. Um, so she managed to win uh, a financial compensation um, and nice. some fancy new castles near Paris. Uh, nice. So she fought for her own, you know... Uh, interests. You know, interests, yeah. She, she was like, I'm not... I'm not a pushover. Basically, I got done dirty by this deal that was done when I was six years old. <laughs> So, so now that I'm me. in my 30s and I'm a widow and I'm like my own independent woman, I'm, I'm going to get what's mine, basically. Yes. So not only did Joan allow the English to pass freely through her lands, uh, she also demanded special privileges and liberties in return for the King of France being able to levy troops from among her knights and peasants. So she's kind of playing both sides a little bit. Like, she is allowing the, the English to pass through her lands, but she's also allowing the French to still raise troops from those lands. You know, I love a little bit of sneaky foxiness. She's kind of helping the Valois by providing troops, but they have to compensate her. They give her, like, special privileges for, for, get, for having her troops. And she can still do what she wants with her land. And she's kind of, in a way, sabotaging the war effort, <laughs> which is kind of funny. It won't be as funny when we get really exhausted with the Hundred Years' War and we're like, why won't this just end? Why is everyone fighting? Um, which is going to happen eventually. But um, for now, it's fun. <laughs> Joan couldn't have known how long and grueling this war would end up being. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we go forward, we'll see her son, Charles the Bad, become even more hostile uh, towards the new French royal family and try to assert his own power in that way but in many ways he was set up by his mother to go Mm. along that path um and he kind of spirals out of control a little bit we'll see him do some like murders and that sort of thing like he's 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 a really scandalous person oh my god Um, i love i love bit of scandal scandal so it's i i think the anti-french stance for joan is there's 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 not much evidence of it being just because she's bitter that she didn't get the crown i think it's also her being practical and looking out for the needs of her people rather than, you know, just re- revenge. So so what are we going to give to Joan for on guard? Mm, well, she got her personal interests. I like how she's like, I go to court. I'm going to my interests down. Yeah, she's I being smart. It's owed to me. She's and she's playing smart. both sides. She crafting. She's playing both sides. She She's careful not to step on toes when her husband's alive, but then when he's dead, she's kind of like, I can get away with a bit more. That shackles off. Woohoo. Yeah. But even in her marriage, she still, she once again played both sides and she tried to make things as advantageous for her personally as possible, which is what we like to Mm -hmm. see in On Guard. Yes. A lot of the unfortunate things that happened to Joan in her life happened to her when she was too young to be able to stop them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just not really her fault. Yeah. But she's kind of over time clawing her way back and being like, I'm not, you can't cast me out and make me irrelevant. I'm still a big player in French politics, even though I got passed over the throne when I was a child. I won't let you forget me. So I think that is an admirable 
yes. life. Really? Mm. She she made yeah. the best of a bad situation. So what would you like to give on guard? I don't know, like a six? Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm going to look at the other female rules. But we had, we had Blanche of Castile getting a 9.5 because she was really... Um, Asserting herself as the region of France. Yeah. Um, During the first of Navarre, just get a two and a three because she she didn't do a lot to assert herself. Mm. Um, And we had Eleanor of Aquitaine getting a seven and 7.5 because she asserted herself, but with uh, some mixed results, including Mm -hmm. getting imprisoned for many, many years. (laughs) Um, That really takes away. I think a six. I'm like tempted to go seven. No, I think six. I think, you know, yeah, I think six. Hmm. Ah, yeah, six. Just go 6.5 <laughs> with your... There's a lot of compromise happening, so I think six is... No, you're right. I'll go 6.5. Why not? Why not? 6.5. <laughs> she fights for her right. Six. Go six. Okay, so that is a 12.5 on guard. Moving on to voulez-vous. Voulez-vous. Uh, now, Joan and her husband proved that they were up to the task when it came to juggling the needs of their counties in France and their Navarrese kingdom, as we've said. Yes. Uh, most of the time the couple spent in Navarre itself was spent cleaning up the mess that had been made in the years of royal neglect that had preceded them. Um, oh. They repaired and built new fortifications to protect the land from Castilian incursions. Uh, they introduced new irrigation systems to fertilize the valley of nice so they so the valley of tudela in the south is like this river valley and they 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 made sure that there were some good irrigation systems happening and they also um and this like improved crop yields after the recent famine years where we've just we've just had the great famine which has also affected spain devastating so as i mentioned in on guard during her widowhood Joan's solo reign was mainly based in France, looking after her own interests and those of her people in a chaotic and uncertain period. Yeah, well, making letting the like English pass through so that way they weren't yeah. the, her like land and people weren't being killed and destroyed. Exactly, and we'll def- we're definitely also considering her her reign over her French counties, um, yeah. as well as her reign in Navarre, as like just equally as important. So we'll get into next episode, uh, but Edward III's invasion of France was extremely violent and deadly for both sides. There was a there was a tactic he used called the chevauchée, which is basically Ooh. kill, burn, and destroy everything in your path, leaving nothing Ooh. behind. Or salt the earth. Yeah, we'll get into why he used this tactic next episode. But but Joan managed somehow to appease both sides, ensuring not only the continuation of her own power at the French court, but, that did not but happen. also the continued welfare of her people against the wrath of the English, who just skirted mm. her, uh, over her lands, uh, didn't yeah. rape and pillage. Yeah. So, of course, we do get the Black Death three, three years later, but obviously she can't be blamed for that, especially since she died yeah. from it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she really can't be. Yeah, let's just ignore the Black Death when it comes to Bolivia, because that's more of a thing that affects things. No one can control. And that no one can control. So it's like, we don't get to see a response to the Black Death, because her response is to die. (laughs) If that makes sense. So that's the main stuff I've got for Bolivia. I mean, I I think Joan is definitely stronger on the selfish wins. Um... (laughs) Mm. 
as are most <laughs> royals and nobles at this time period. They're just trying to fight for their own rights in a very politically mm. unstable period. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessarily to the detriment of her people. This time around, at least. Yeah. I'm thinking like a like a like a like a five. Yeah, I'm thinking five. Yeah. Because she's clearly looking out for nothing... people, but she's yeah. She's not necessarily going above and beyond, but she's really improving things in. Yeah. In I guess because it improves, I'm technically I'm 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 considering going slightly above five. Uh, she's bringing five. it. Yeah, maybe stick to five. She's bringing things back up to the baseline of where they should be. If like France yeah. had not neglected Navarre for so long, France had done its job. If France has done its job, so yeah, maybe a five is good then. In that case, um, mm. which during the first Navarre got a six actually for her her rule in in France, and I think she yeah. was more into founding like educational things and stuff like that. Um, she was a bit stronger on the cultural patronage. Um, so that, uh, I'm comfortable with that score. So that's a 10 for Bulebu. Yeah, that's really good. Moving on to Ooh La La. <gasps> Ooh La La. So Joan, while she did not leave a, lead a very scandalous life herself, she was definitely born into scandal. Uh, her mother was a convicted mm. adulteress, potentially murdered by her father's orders. But... Joan herself was pretty upstanding uh, yeah. for a princess of her time. Uh, throughout mm. her childhood and her marriage, she seems to go along with whatever the men around her want her to do. And it's only in widowhood that we get the sense of a woman who's just sick and tired of all these men's bullshit. And mm. <laughs> at this point, I'd call her politically savvy, not scandalous. Um, yeah. And we've given her points for that in other rounds, but yeah, I wouldn't call it scandalous. Yeah, I can't really give her anything. I'm tempted to give her, like, a point for Yeah, the... I was kind of thinking maybe a point for being nice for English when she most likely should have been more in French. Oh, yeah. Side. I think, yeah, I think the playing both sides maybe is worth a couple of points. Because it's, it's, yeah. really, uh, it's really... It's yeah. really uh, sneaky. Sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Maybe a point for each side. So, point for English, a point for France? Sure. A point for both sides. I agree with that. Yeah. So, that is a four for Ooh La La. Mm. And now we come to La Vie en Throne. La Vie en Throne. Queen Joan II reigned in Navarre from the 1st of April 1328 until her death on the 6th of October 1349 of the Black Death. Mm. Uh, so that is 21 years, 6 months, and 5 days. Hmm. Which equals exactly 4 points. Oh. Then we get to the children, and there's quite a few of them. So Joan gave birth to a total of Ooh. 9 ch- recorded children Damn. by her husband, Philip of Evra. And quite a few of them survive. We've got Joan Jr., uh, who was betrothed to Pedro IV of Aragon. Uh, but she ended up being a nun instead and going to live at Longchamp, uh, St. Isabella's Abbey in Paris, where she lived into her oh. 60s, presumably nice. alongside uh, Blanche, uh, Blanche of <laughs> France, uh, the daughter of Philip V, who, if you remember, became a nun to atone for the sins of her aunt, Blanche. Oh, yeah. So that was the oldest. 
Yes, this is the oldest. She's the one who is meant to marry the prince of Aragorn. Yes. yes. Oh, I wonder why that... Did he die or something? No. So her younger sister, oh. Maria, actually <laughs> married Pedro oh. IV instead. So that brings us to the second child, Maria. Uh, okay. And uh, Maria managed to have two daughters before sadly dying at the age of 18. Oh. So That's she does mom. not manage... To outlive her mother, no. So she's Aww. not counted. Our next child isn't counted either. We've got the firstborn son, Louis, who dies at age four. Oh. Um, then the fourth child, we've got Blanche of Navarre. Uh, mm. She was originally intended to marry Count Louis II of Flanders, but these negotiations fell through. Uh, so then Joan was shopping around for a Castilian prince for Blanche to marry. Uh, <laughs> but finally... Around the time of Joan's death, uh, she was in negotiations uh, for her daughter to marry the son and heir of Philip VI of France. So, to become the Queen of France. And we'll see how that pans out next episode. Mm. It's a very juicy story, actually. Uh, But of Noir, basically, she's sent to the French court. um, And she ends up living to the age of 68. Nice. So good for her. So then the fifth child, we've got Charles, who became Charles II of Navarre after his mother's death, became known by the French as Charles the Bad. Um, naughty, naughty. I bet you the people of Navarre was like, Charles the Good, pissing <laughs> off the French. So he arguably had the strongest claim to be uh, to the French throne out of anyone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if uh, we accept the throne passing through the female line. Uh, so he was a significant challenge challenger to the House of Valois, and he went to great lengths trying to fulfill his ambitions, to the extent that we may or may not be doing an episode on him in the future, but we'll get to that. Ooh. Then episode six. Episode six. Then child six. <laughs> yeah, episode six. Uh, we have Philip. Uh, Philip Jr., who inherited okay. the county of Longueville in Normandy. And married Yolanda of Flanders, <laughs> which is fun to say. <laughs> um, though the couple had no children, unfortunately. Oh. But Philip of Longueville uh, sired at least two illegitimate children before dying oh. at the age of 30. Um, oh. Plague? No, this was after the plague. He was still in his teens when his mother died of the plague. Oh. Uh, so he's counted, thankfully. So Agnes is the seventh child. Um, mm-hmm. named after the grandmother Agnes, who fought for Joan's rights to be queen. Yeah. Um, so Agnes married Gaston III, Count of Foix, um, <laughs> <laughs> who was one of the most powerful lords in southern France. Uh, he's one of these uh, troublesome lords in Languedoc uh, that we talked about. So he didn't the, eat the 12 dozen eggs crusades. or whatever it was, four dozen eggs. Well, maybe he did. He was an important military ally to the Navarrese. He was a, a strong guy, was, was Gaston. Um, <laughs> and uh, one writer, uh, Richard Vernier, uh, described uh, his marriage to Agnes as, quote, a marriage made in heaven. It sanctioned oh. the ties of friendship between the two families. Although I think he's more talking about the fact that this is an advantageous alliance rather than the Good couple love. actually getting along. <laughs> so Agnes... Yeah. Managed to live to her 60s once again. Wow. The Though the two families faced strife when Joan died without paying the full dowry. Mm. So the Foix family became completely at odds with Charles the Bad. Um, and 
They, were they weren't mad. mean to Agnes, though, were they? They probably were, because everything always gets blamed Aww. on the woman, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Louis is the eighth child. There's an eighth child called Louis. Um, mm-hmm. He inherited the county of beaumont le Roger in Normandy, once again. Okay. Uh, so, Joan's basically giving her young her younger sons the, the Norman lands. Yeah. Um, but he ended up marrying a princess of the house of Anjou, did Louis. Oh. Duchess Joanna of Durazzo. Mm. So remember, the Anjou's don't rule Anjou anymore. They're off in Naples. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Duchy of Durazzo is roughly modern-day Albania. Oh. Um, so, like, just west of Greece, basically. Yeah, the northwest yeah. of Greece. Uh, though, Duchess Joanna herself was born in Naples and mostly resided there. Yeah. So, Louis goes off to Naples, and uh, Joanna's an important heiress, um, or a contender, to be heir to the throne of Naples. So that's an important marriage there. Yeah. So then we've got the youngest child, the ninth child, another Joan, Mm -hmm. because for some reason we need two daughters called Joan. Um, And uh, she also lived into her sixties and she married uh, Viscount John of Rouen, a Breton Lord in the Northwest Mm -hmm. of France. So how many children is that for Joan? Seven, is it? Two died? Yeah. So for seven children, uh, she gets 11.8 points, which is pretty good. Woohoo! Um, so that's a total Beyond Throne score of 15.8. Nice. Now nice. for the grand total. For the grand total score. Drum roll, please. Bling. Joan the Second of Navarre receives a very respectable score of 51.3. Mm-hmm. Nice. Not too shabby. Which means that she has more points than all of the uncles who usurped her. Ha ha. If that's not justice, I don't know what is. <laughs> She's smiling wherever she is right now. Yeah. So with that being said, what seating shall we give to Joan the Second of Navarre? Will she be uh, damned to the nosebleed section? Or will she be considered respectable enough for the economy plus tier and get some free popcorn? Or will she be enshrined in the VIP box with the likes of Eleanor of Aquitaine and, and Charles Martel? Well, obviously, no, she's not going in the nosebleed. She's too good for that. But I don't know if I can give her VIP. Yeah, I think this might be another Economy Plus one. Economy Plus, yeah. Yeah, which is getting quite full, the Economy Plus more. box. <laughs> Well, come on, you can't have everyone in the VIP. You've yeah, still only got two people in the nosebleed section. It's <laughs> because well, it's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we tend not to talk about people as, as often, do we? Exactly why. Yeah. So, so that is Economy Plus. Ooh, um, she gets some free popcorn. She gets some free popcorn. She gets a bit of extra butter on hers, though. A bit of extra butter, a bit of extra leg room. Um, yeah, she just gets... And um, she can actually see what's going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Front row economy plus seat. Yeah, she can see the she can see the conductor in the orchestra. She can see the top of his head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining this is a theatre now rather than a jousting tournament. <laughs> so that's Joan the second. And mm-hmm. she is the last of the direct Capetians that we are rating. Um, 
This is the last of the House of Capet. Although, of course, all of the other monarchs we're going to talk about up until the French Revolution will still be Capetians technically. They'll just be of different branches of the same dynasty. Yeah. Our next King episode, we'll be talking about mm-hmm. Philip VI of, of, of France. But before then, we're going to have a couple special episodes. We're going to have one mm-hmm. where we go through all the rankings, update that, see where everyone's doing, uh, seeing who, who's gotten close to Charlemagne, basically, <laughs> and like refreshing ourselves a little bit about the history that we've just been over before we jump straight into the next period. Yeah. And after that, we're going to have on a very special guest who I've just invited uh, to the podcast, <laughs> which is Gary Giraud of the French History Podcast, which is very exciting. Um, mm-hmm. So he's going to come on kind of like Rutger did at the end of the Carolingian series. And yeah. like, we're going to like pick his brains about what he thought of the monarchs because he, in the French History Podcast, he is like in the middle of the Capetian dynasty uh, currently. He's just done an episode oh. on Philip I. But, you know, he's he's more qualified than me. He's got a PhD. So, uh, more uh, qualified than me. So I think he's worth having on just to see, just to get a, diff- a slightly different perspective on things. Yeah. And see if he agrees with all of our guillotinings, I think. Yes. Um, we've had a couple of controversial ones. Um, mm-hmm. Like like when we guillotined St. Louis, that was quite fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was. Good old times. Good times. Uh, so that's going to be the next couple episodes. We're going to have the, the ranking roundup, and then we're going to have the special episode with Gary mm. going back over the commissions. Let us know what you thought of them. Let us know what you thought of them. And that's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>